When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. In these verses, Mark recounts, recalls many details. And here we need to remember what we considered this past Friday evening as we read from Mark 15, as we listened to our brother Jed preach. In Mark 15, we saw Jesus being crucified by the hands of lawless men. Chapter concludes, chapter 15 concludes by emphasizing the fact that Jesus really was dead. So if you look back in Mark chapter 15, you'll notice in verse 37 that Jesus breathed his last. Then in verse 43, we're told that Joseph of Arimathea asked for the body of Jesus. In Mark chapter 15, verse 44, Pilate sought confirmation that Jesus was dead. And confirmation was given in verse 45, that Jesus was dead. And, and Joseph of Arimathea was granted the corpse. In Mark chapter 15, verse 46, we see Joseph of Arimathea treating the body of Jesus like a dead body. Not only by wrapping it in a linen cloth, but by putting his body in the place where dead bodies went in that day and age, in the tomb. As part of his desire to emphasize the point that Jesus was dead, Mark actually, he identified several witnesses who saw Jesus die. Many witnesses. So in verse 39, we're told that a centurion saw Jesus breathe his last. And then in verses 40 and 41, we're told that the women here in Mark 16 witness Jesus' death. And in verse 47, his burial. This emphasis that Jesus is dead continues into chapter 16. And into this scene outside the tomb as these three women approach the tomb with spices. Who were these women approaching the tomb? We don't know a whole lot about them. But Mark's first readers probably would have known them by the mention of their name. One of the significant details about these women is that Mark gave his readers is found really in verse 41 of the previous chapter, Mark 15, where Mark mentions that they, they followed Jesus and ministered to him. Mark very clearly casts these women as, as followers of Jesus and those who supported him in the ministry. Mark notes that, that they approached the tomb when the Sabbath was passed and very early on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. The resurrection on Sunday morning is what caused early Christians to shift their gatherings from meeting on Saturday to meeting on Sunday. So if you've, you've ever wondered why Christians meet on Sunday, well, it's because that Jesus, he, he got up from the dead on Sunday morning. These women had been at the tomb uh, three days before on Friday afternoon. You can see that in the very last verse of chapter 15. But, but here's the thing. See, Jesus' burial, it, it was a rushed burial. The Sabbath was approaching, and Joseph of Arimathea wanted to see that Jesus' body was laid to rest quickly. Uh, the quick nature of his burial meant that Jesus' disciples, and particularly these women, uh, couldn't quite honor his body as they desired. These women observed the Sabbath on Saturday, and now early on Sunday morning, they're on their way to more fully and appropriately pay their respects to the body of their departed master. And as bodies decay, they, they tend to put off a, a strong odor. So these spices would help to kind of cover some of that odor. The purchase of spices is part of, I think, the continuing 
line of evidence that these women believe that Jesus is dead. These women also talk as though Jesus is dead and, and sealed in the tomb. So you'll notice there in verse 3 that Mark records, he records some of their conversation. As they approach the tomb, they're suddenly concerned, it's kind of like dawning on them, that they're not going to be able to accomplish their goal of anointing Jesus' body. It's, it's, it's almost as if they're, they're in such a daze from Jesus' death that they hadn't taken any time to practically think through what it might actually take to anoint the body of Jesus. Anyone here this morning who has lost a loved one will know that such a loss kind of sends us spinning emotionally and mentally. After the death of a loved one, we're, we're not necessarily um, thinking through all of the things that need to happen for their burial and their remembrance to take place in a, a clear manner. Uh, and that's why there are, are funeral homes and kind employees who help us to kind of put the shattered pieces of our lives together in the time of death. The, the, the experience of loss for these women is something that I, I think we can relate to and in our own experience of loss. One of the things you'll notice that dawns on them as they approach the tomb is that they're about to be confronted with this immovable stone. The stone that covers the tomb is so massive that the three of them realize they won't be able to open it without help. The size of the, the gravestone, particularly in those days, uh, demanded that several strong men would have to roll it out of place if it were to be moved. And from Matthew's Gospel, another eyewitness account, uh, we learned that Pilate even stationed guards at the tomb. Jesus' tomb was sealed and secured in such a way so as to ensure that no one could get in or out. In verse 4, Mark begins to kind of unravel the surprise that, and wonder that these women are about to experience. They're, they're walking and talking, perhaps with heads hanging low from discouragement that their master is dead, and yet they look up and they see that the stone had been rolled back. They had personally witnessed the, the massive stone rolled in front of the tomb. Mark, he, he doesn't make any mention of how it was rolled back. He simply states it as a fact. These women, they think that Jesus is dead. Because he was. And they're surprised that the stone to the tomb has been rolled away. That's the first surprise that we encounter in this text. We've considered the scene of the women kind of approaching the tomb. Let's study now the scene inside the tomb where another surprise awaits us. This is the second scene we want to consider together this morning, second point, inside the tomb. Read verses 5 through 7 now. Verses 5 through 7. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Mark, he is incredibly restrained in describing this scene. It's almost as if he's describing the scene inside the tomb in such a way that it does not distract 
from the main point that he wants to express, that Jesus has risen from the dead. He describes the women as entering the tomb and seeing a young man sitting on the right side. Matthew's Gospel tells us that this young man is an angel, that his appearance is like that of, of lightning, that his clothing was as white as snow. Compare that to how Mark describes this. Mark, as you can see, is very mere in his description. The focus is not on the angel, but on his message. In the scriptures, whenever, whenever angels appear, uh, they tend to freak people out. Uh, so their first words are often, do not be afraid, do, do not be alarmed. After all, their, if their appearance is, is anything like how Matthew's gospel described it, their appearance is like lightning, uh, then that would give anyone pause. In, in your lifetime, perhaps uh, lightning has struck near you or nearby, uh, and, and it's so close that it's made you kind of deeply afraid. I think that's kind of the experience that these women are having here. Now, the Bible teaches that one of the main responsibilities of angels, if not the main responsibility of angels, is to deliver God's message. And this, this angel, he delivers a most remarkable message. It's a surprising message. Look at verse 6 again. He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. In case there were any doubt, the angel identifies the one who had been laid in the tomb as Jesus of Nazareth, the one who had been crucified. But that is not his only message. This Jesus that, that these women seek has risen. But what does it mean that Jesus has risen? It means that he, Jesus, got up from the dead. Uh, a dead man got up to live again. He got up to live and never die again. Jesus, during his life and ministry, raised some people from the dead. He resuscitated them. But they would all die again. Jesus, on the other hand, received an imperishable body, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We know that this was a bodily resurrection too because of what the angel said. He said, he is not here. The angel directs the women to, to take a look, to see for themselves the place where the body was laid. To see that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Listen to how early preachers of the gospel explain what this phrase, He is risen, uh, meant. In Acts chapter 2, verse 24, the Apostle Peter, preaching, says, God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. You see, God is stronger than death. But why did God raise Jesus from the dead? God raised Jesus from the dead because He promised that one day He would send a son, His son, to defeat sin and death. And, and here's the thing that we need to realize about what's taking place here in the Gospel of Mark. This was effectively promised right at the very beginning of the entire Bible. Virtually from day one, this is where the story of God's mercy and grace has been headed. So shortly after God created the world, including the first man and the first woman, sin entered the world. The first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, decided that they would set up their own kingdom 
and live as their own rulers when they decided to rebel against God's authority and His good command. God actually promised them that they would have eternal life, eternal life of joy and fellowship with Him if they would trust and obey Him. God provided abundantly for them by setting them in paradise, a, a, a garden kingdom, and permitting them to eat from every tree in the garden except, except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God promised that should Adam and Eve disobey, their sin would be punished by death. And when Adam and Eve partook of that fruit, that forbidden fruit from the tree, they expressed the desire to decide what was good and what was evil, thus rejecting God and His gracious garden kingdom. And God was true to His word. Death entered into our world as a consequence of sin. It is the just punishment of sin. And the good news of the Bible is that on the day that Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God, God made a promise that is coming true in Mark 16. God promised that He would send a son. And the Old Testament teaches us that it would be His son. He would send His son to defeat sin and death, to crush the head of the serpent and defeat all that He brought to ruin. What was done in the Garden of Eden is being undone through this empty garden tomb. This is what has happened in Jesus' resurrection from the grave. And Jesus' resurrection means something for us. It means something for you and for me here this morning. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, the Apostle Paul tells us what Jesus' resurrection means for us. He says that Jesus was raised for our justification. Did you know that? Did you know that you need to be justified. We need to be justified. We need to be considered and counted as righteous in God's sight. Which means that we are unrighteous in God's sight, apart from Jesus. Which means that we will face God's eternal judgment. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31 tells us that the resurrection is proof that God will judge the world. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Acts 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all, listen closely, by raising Him from the dead. God has given assurance to us all in Jesus' resurrection that a final day of judgment is coming. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a, a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I, I want to tell you the angel's announcement in Mark chapter 16, verse 6, is good news. The angel's announcement means that if you turn from your sins and you place your faith in Jesus, you will be justified. And, and let me explain what I mean by that. See, he, God, He created all of us. He created us in His image to love and serve Him. But like our first parents, like Adam and Eve, we've all sinned. We've all decided to live our own way rather than God's way. We have, we have not done what is right. And therefore, we are unrighteous in God's sight. Because we have violated God's holy law, we stand in danger of facing His just judgment. We stand in danger of facing God's just and eternal wrath in hell for our unrighteousness. But, 
in love and mercy, God sent Jesus to live the life that we ought to have lived and to die the death that we deserve. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. He obeyed every single one of God's commands. And yet, on the cross, He willingly took upon Himself the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. Jesus took our sins upon Himself. And because He did, He bore God's just punishment for our sins. Jesus, He was buried on Friday afternoon. And then early on Sunday morning, God raised Jesus from the dead. God vindicated Jesus, proving to us all that Jesus was perfectly innocent and free of sin. Jesus perfect, perfectly bore God's punishment for the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. And Jesus calls us all. He calls you, friend. He calls me to turn from our sins and to place our faith in Him. He calls you to believe that He died on your behalf. And because Jesus died on our behalf, our sins are credited to His account and His righteousness is credited to ours. That's what we read about earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. At the cross, this wonderful, marvelous exchange takes place. The righteous Jesus died for the unrighteous to make them righteous. It is in the resurrection that we see that this exchange was acceptable to God. He was raised for our justification. Because of Jesus, we can be made righteous in God's sight and justified, declared to be in the right. Friends, this announcement of the empty tomb and of Jesus' resurrection is your only hope of justification before God. And so I want to invite you to turn from your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning, you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I'd love to talk to you about that. You can find me at the door after the service. Maybe talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning uh, after the service or at lunch. There's nothing uh, more important you can think about than this good news, what it means that the tomb is empty. And, and dear Christian, I, I want to encourage you to rejoice that through repentance and faith, you live justified in God's sight. And because of Jesus' resurrection, one day you are guaranteed a resurrection from the dead. Uh, one Puritan minister, Thomas Watson, said that we are more surely to rise from our graves than we will to rise from our beds. And that is true. We are guaranteed both a spiritual resurrection and a physical resurrection. Our spiritual resurrection occurs when we're given new life in Christ. We learn that from Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10, and our physical resurrection will occur on the last day. We learn that from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42. And listen to what the Apostle Paul says about how the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, intersects with your life today. Jesus' resurrection has implications for your life today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 48. Therefore, my beloved brothers, therefore, given everything that I've said about the resurrection here in chapter 15, Paul says... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, this Easter Sunday does not mean we have reached the high point of our evangelistic 
or Christian calendar this year. Rather, this Sunday and every Sunday and every day reminds us that we are to keep abounding in the work of the Lord. This type of active work to advance the gospel reflects the very nature of the resurrection, springing from death to life. It is a return from death to life. Your Christian life is to reflect the nature of the resurrection, alive and active and moving. Corporately, as a church, we want to keep going about the work of the gospel week in and week out. We want to keep gathering, keep singing God's praises, keep praying and keep hearing His word. The resurrection for the glory of God is to have repercussions. It is an announcement that is to be told. And that's what we see there in Mark chapter 16, verse 7. Take a look at that verse. The angel not only tells us, that the, tells these women that Jesus has risen, but he also tells them in verse 7 that they're to tell Jesus' disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The angel you see there, he has given these women a mission, a commission, really. They're to tell the disciples, and especially Peter, this good news. By the way, this is, I think, yet another piece of evidence uh, that reminds us that Mark's gospel is true. It's authentic. If you're trying to make up a religion in the first century, you don't include a story about women who were going to the tomb, preparing uh, to kind of care for the dead body of your religion's founder. Instead... In the first century, if you were to make up a story, you actually wouldn't have women be the first witnesses to Christ's resurrection in the first place. Um, no, no offense, ladies. Uh, the reality is that in the first century court of law, typically women would not be called upon to give uh, an account of events. They wouldn't be called upon to give testimony. Sadly, the, the first century culture was suspicious of the testimony of women. So if you were making up this story, and you wanted to have credibility with the public, you, you would make the first witness a man and not a woman. Nevertheless, even if you for some reason decided that women should be your first witnesses, you wouldn't have them approaching the tomb to finish preparing the, the body, the dead body of Jesus. Instead, you would have them kind of approaching the tomb, confident that they're going to see Jesus alive. But they're not going there expecting to see Jesus alive, are they? And, and, and what we're going to see in a minute is that they were not merely surprised, but they were positively shocked by what they saw, or better yet, didn't see. This story isn't made up. This is really what happened. This text has the texture of honesty and authenticity. Mark, he's being a faithful historian, trusting God that this good news is, is going to run rapidly. The angel, in verse 7, he instructed these women to tell the disciples and to tell Peter because they needed to meet up with their master again and to be sent on their mission of preaching the good news of the resurrection to the whole world. The last time that Jesus and his disciples were together face to face, they were in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was arrested and the disciples abandoned him. And one of the last times that, we, that Jesus saw Peter was when the rooster had crowed upon Peter's third denial. Uh, the disciples and especially Peter needed to hear this 
good news. And I love how the end of verse 7 encapsulates the faithful word of Jesus. The angel says to the women, there you will see him just, just as he told you. In Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 33, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 32, and Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, Jesus told his disciples that he would be killed and that three days later God would raise him from the dead. Then, in Mark chapter 14, verse 28, when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said this to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. What was it that the angel said there in verse 7? He said, Go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. The angel is basically saying to these women, Jesus, you see, he makes promises. And he keeps them. In fact, he made a promise to you, and he's kept it. He told you that he would die, and he told you that three days later that he would rise. He's kept his promise. Go and find him. These female disciples of Christ have approached the tomb. They've entered the tomb and found that Jesus was not there, but risen. They've been commanded to go and tell others the good news of Jesus' resurrection. What happens next? Well, we're greeted by another surprise. Let's take a look at the final scene of Mark's gospel, the scene where the women leave the tomb. It's our third point, leaving the tomb. Read verse 8 there. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is where Mark's gospel ends. It ends with these women leaving the tomb astonished, silent, and fearful. These are common, if not the prevailing responses to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark as a whole. In fact, beginning in Mark chapter 1 and working all the way through Mark chapter 16, we see this type of response to Jesus no less than 13 times. Let's look through some of these responses. I wish we had time to work through them all, but uh, only a handful will have to suffice for now. So turn back to the very beginning of Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 1. Take a look at verse 22. That's on page 836 of the Bibles provided. The large number there, one is the chapter. The smaller number there is uh, the verse, verse 22. Take a look at Mark 1.22 and consider how others responded to Jesus' teaching. Mark chapter 1, verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. See that astonished by Jesus, just like the women leaving the tomb. Now fast forward a couple of chapters to Mark chapter 4, verse 41. Here, Jesus, he commands the winds and the waves to be still. He, he calms a, a, a raging storm. And consider how the disciples respond there in verse 41. Mark chapter 4, verse 41. And they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? Filled with fear, just like the women leaving the tomb. Who indeed is this who can calm winds and waves? 
Skip ahead to Mark chapter 5, verse 15. Here Jesus heals a demon-possessed man and sends uh, the, the, pig, the demons into pigs. And those demons take the pigs over this cliff. Now read the response of the people of what they saw in Mark chapter 5, verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Afraid. Just like the women leaving the tomb. Move ahead 15 verses or so to Mark chapter 5, verse 31. Here in a short stretch of verses, from Mark chapter 5, verse 31 to 34, we meet a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and no physician could heal her. She touches Jesus and she's healed. And Jesus, he turns around and he asks, who touched me? And look at verse 33. Mark 5, 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she was healed, she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Fear and trembling, just like the women leaving the tomb. Then in Mark 6, the very next chapter, Jesus, he returns to his hometown to do some teaching. Take a look at how the people of Jesus' hometown respond to his teaching. Mark chapter 6, verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Astonished. Just like the women leaving the tomb. And this is at least the second time that people start raising questions about what's going on. Who, who is this? What's this power? How are these things happening? These are good questions. A little later in Mark chapter 6, verse 51 to be specific, we're, we're greeted by another reaction. Uh, this time the disciples, they're, they're reacting to Jesus walking on water. Have you ever known anyone to walk on water before? Have they, have they done it before your eyes? Well, take a look at Mark chapter 6, verse 51. And he got into the boat, after walking on the water, got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened, afraid, utterly astounded, just like the women leaving the tomb. One chapter later, chapter 7, Verse 37, after Jesus healed a man who was deaf and mute, he couldn't speak, um, Jesus, we, we read this, a new response is, is given in Mark chapter 7, verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done things, all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. They were astonished beyond measure, just like the women leaving the tomb. Now, skipping over a handful of these, uh, turn to Mark chapter 10. Verse 32. There's astonishment and amazement here. This time, astonishment and amazement precedes Jesus' teaching about his death and resurrection. Read Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. They're on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise, astonished and amazed that Jesus would so resolutely set his face 
toward Jerusalem, knowing that death awaits him. Astonished and amazed, just like the women leaving the tomb. And we could keep going. Uh, there, we've barely scratched the surface of half of these occurrences in Mark's gospel. But I trust you see the point. So, so turn back to Mark 16, verse 8. Mark chapter 16, verse 8. I think that's 853. Could be wrong about that page number. But take a look at, at verse 8 again of Mark 16. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, God is revealing Himself. God is revealing Himself in the character, teaching, person, and work of Jesus Christ. It is awe-inspiring. It is fear-inducing. These women are witnesses to an eschatological and end time act of God. It is, to date, perhaps the greatest divine act in redemptive history that has been witnessed by man or woman. As you have seen and heard for yourself, Mark 16.8 serves to summarize how men and women have responded to the great acts of God throughout the Gospel of Mark. It's appropriate that the final and greatest act of God recorded in Mark's Gospel will be responded to with fear and trembling and astonishment. Is it not amazing that the tomb is empty? No one gets up from the dead like that. No one except Jesus. Mark's gospel ends as if to say, what about you? Are you not astonished and amazed by Jesus? This is amazing. And it's also hard to understand. This reminds us of, I think, another reason why Mark concludes his gospel this way. So, throughout the gospel of Mark, the disciples are, are not portrayed as incredibly faithful. They're not the strongest believers. They fail to understand the meaning of what's happening and what's going on. They fail to understand the meaning of the, the, the feeding of the 5,000, the, the four loaves. They, they fail to understand the meaning of Jesus walking on water, that He's God in the flesh. You heard it with your own ears, saw it with your own eyes as we read Mark chapter 6 verse 52 a minute ago. Their hearts were hardened because they did not understand the meaning of the loaves. They, they didn't understand who Jesus was and what He came to do. That's why all these questions are coming out in Mark's gospel. Peter, especially, after, after confessing that Jesus is the Christ, that He's the promised Messiah and Savior of the Old Testament, he sticks his foot in his mouth and he says that Jesus, Jesus, you know what? You're not going to die. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples, all of them, every last one, abandon Jesus. Peter, you'll of course remember, denies Jesus three times this is not a good way to make up a religion. You don't make the founders of your religion look dumb. But, if you are being an honest historian and telling things as they really happened, regardless of how you feel about them, you'll tell the truth. And that's what Mark is doing in all of these instances of, of the disciples Kind of doing the wrong thing, thinking the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing. What should immediately click into our minds as readers is the opposite of what the disciples say and do and think. So 
at the feeding of the 5,000, as readers, uh, we should see Jesus as the great messianic shepherd promised in the Old Testament. When Jesus says that he's going to die and three days later be raised, we should take him at his word rather than doing what Peter did and publicly challenging him, rebuking him for it. When the disciples abandoned Jesus, we should think it's a bad thing to abandon Jesus. Or when Peter denies Jesus, we should immediately think, no, we want to tell others that we love Jesus, that we're his disciple, not deny him. So it's the same here with Mark 16, 8. Mark's readers, first readers would have thought, wait, wait, they don't tell anyone that the tomb is empty? You don't tell anyone this good news? You've got to tell somebody this good news. We learn from the other Gospels that in time, these women did in fact tell others. And the, the message spreads. But by not making it explicit here, I think Mark intends to call forth from his Christian readers, from us, that the natural reaction, that this news needs to be told. People need to hear about what God has done in Jesus. This is Mark's great commission. Verse 8, in that regard, stands as an encouragement to go, to announce the good news that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Mark wants to push us to do something. He wants to push us to make the astonishing announcement of this good news. And this is where I want us to conclude. Friends, I've got an announcement for you. It is an announcement that has been ringing out for 2,000 years. It is surprising, astonishing even. It is an announcement that we should never cease to be amazed by. It is an announcement that should never cease to lose its wonder. It is an announcement that should never become mundane to us. It is an announcement that ought to propel us to go and tell others about the sin and death-defeating power of Jesus. And the announcement is simply this. The tomb is empty. He is risen. Let's pray together.